man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And no one has been more attuned to that impact than today's guest, Andrew Mitchell. A zoologist by training, Andrew realized long ago that to save the forest, he had to leave the forest and enter the economic system that was impacting it. So he founded and runs the Global Canopy Program in Oxford, and he recently became a senior advisor to Ecosphere Plus, which is an impact investment group that funnels money into sustainable land use. I caught up to him in May at the Innovate for Climate conference in Barcelona. I've known Andrew Mitchell since the 2007 climate talks in Bali, Indonesia, when I was just starting to learn about the impact that forestry and farming had on climate change and how our consumption patterns fit into that. I'd done some research on my own and then plunged into the deep end, jumping from technical panel to technical panel and sleeping just four hours a night for about two weeks. Andrew stood out from most of the other science guys because of his ability to communicate complex issues in simple ways, which is a rare skill. More importantly, his ideas have stood the test of time. While a lot of the simple communicators are oversimplifying or speaking from a position of ideology instead of science. As I mentioned, we spoke at the Innovate for Climate conference in Barcelona. It was a great event, and one I'm still harvesting for stories. But I was a little bit disappointed in the amount of time given over to land use, and so was he. After all, 24 to 26 percent of all man-emitted greenhouse gases come from the way we manage our forests, farms, and fields. And it's where we can make the deepest, steepest reductions in the next few years. It's also highly complex and fascinating, which is why I got drawn into it, and why I started Bionic Planet to focus exclusively on our stewardship of the land. I started out by asking Andrew why forests were getting such short shrift. Uh, people here don't really recognize that uh, what's going on in forests and landscapes that are often miles away from where many of these people live uh, is causing emissions which are about, uh, in total, 26%. Forests are alone, the burning of rainforests, the burning of trees for clearance, for land, for agriculture, that's about 15 to 20%. Then you go to add in the agriculture, you get up to about 24%. That's smoke going into the sky. Well, that's only part of it. And then the second part is that if you stop that, it's about 33% of what we need to do to keep below two degrees.
Just to summarize, changes in land use generate about 24 to 26 percent of all anthropogenic or man-caused greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere. It's a number that changes every year because of droughts and fires and other things. But the key point is this. Healthy land systems can absorb more greenhouse gases than they emit. In fact, the forests, farms, and fields of the United States absorb about 15 percent of the country's industrial emissions and we'll be doing a whole podcast just on that alone. If you take one thing away from this episode, it's this. If we ended deforestation right now, we'd be one-third of the way towards the reductions we need to keep global temperatures from rising 2 degrees Celsius, which is the point at which the climate models start to go haywire and all bets are off. Now, that's a huge, that's one-third of the action that we could take to keep the Earth's temperature below two degrees can come from forests and landscapes. So that's huge. Now, you might think that the conversation here would be at least a third on that issue, but it's actually invisible. It's less than 1%. In fact, nobody really talks about it. It's very, very little, and that's wrong. So you get a tiny amount of the money going into that sector and a tiny amount of the conversation, because we all talk about factories, we talk about cars, we talk about energy, not landscapes. And that's what we need to change. Just to clarify, I'm not against renewable energy and solar technology, and neither is Andrew. We need those technologies, and we need to reduce industrial emissions. But other media are beginning to cover that, while they're still giving short shrift to land use. And the thing is this, even if we reduced industrial emissions to zero, our forests, farms, fields, and water bodies, all of the ecosystems that keep us alive are now destabilized to such a degree that we now live on a managed planet. If you agree that these are important issues that should be covered in a way that a non-technical audience can understand, and if you like the way I'm trying to cover them, then you can help by giving me a good rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access my show. Or you can share Bionic Planet with friends. Or the ultimate support, become a patron at bionic-planet.com. Because I depend on you to get these out, and I've set the patronage page so that you can help per episode but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode, or 10 or 50 or whatever. I won't complain. And on that note, I'd like to welcome two new patrons, Nicola Church of London and a guy named Stefan who goes by the name Sustainability Doctor. He's been communicating with me since the day I started Bionic Planet early last year. Finally, as you may have noticed, I've changed things a bit this year. I'm aiming to mostly do interview-based episodes for now, but given the complexity of the material, I'll be interjecting occasionally, like I am here, to clarify certain concepts. It's a hybrid between a straight interview and a feature package, although I still think that in-depth, documentary-style features with multiple voices and some story structure are the best way to explain complex issues. Unfortunately, those take a lot of time to construct, more time than I have right now, and they really require a whole team to do right. 
Until I can afford that, I'm concentrating on generating these simpler, single-issue, single-guest podcasts. Picking up with Andrew, he said that we needed to get money flowing into forests, and we needed to do this by getting conversation going. I then asked him how we do that. Well, it is changing in that people are becoming much more aware because of the issue of the burning of rainforests and the destruction of agricultural land, or by agriculture, is getting much more attention than it used to get. Uh, I mean, I've been working on these issues for 40 years, and uh, 20, 20 years ago, no one was talking about this. But the huge deforestation that occurred in the Amazon, of course, that, that's got more attention now because of the climate risk that it's causing. But the thing that's really happened just in the last five years is that people are realizing that what's driving all this is the food we eat. Things like palm oil, uh, soy, which goes into feeding uh, chickens and pigs, in, uh, particularly in Europe and China, uh, and things like paper and pulp, the, the beef industry and leather industry making our shoes. A lot of that leather is coming from Brazil. All of these things, cocoa and coffee, these sorts of commodities that we use every day are driving this problem. And the companies who are trading and producing and trading and transporting and selling us those commodities have wised up to the fact that they have a responsibility to deal with deforestation. And that's what's changed, is that we're getting much more attention on it now. We're seeing more attention on the supply chain side mm. from companies, but I still don't see a whole lot of focus on it here at this meeting, which is designed to funnel finance into climate-safe practices. It's, it mm. seems like most of the attention here is still focused on renewable energy and, and yeah. new technologies rather than supporting old technologies that do a very good mm. job of reducing emissions in forests. Is there yeah. I mean, well, in funny enough, one of the oldest pieces of technology in climate is a tree. Mm. It's a really good carbon capture and storage mechanism mm. that soaks up about a billion tons of CO2 every year. Mm -hmm. uh, for free mm -hmm. uh, around the tropics, that's tropical forest, so it's, it's extremely valuable. But people kind of take that for granted. Then you get into, okay, well, how do we invest in landscapes and in agricultural reforms um, that would turn around the situation which is causing forests to burn? And that gets kind of tricky because you get situations where we don't know who owns the land. Land tenure is a major issue. So who owns the land? Uh, you get into issues of, there in many cases, like in palm oil, there are millions of people involved in the palm oil industry. Uh, many, many different families. Uh, and it's not like you're just going to a factory uh, uh, and turning it on and off. And so it's a more complicated environment. Yet there are billions and billions of dollars that are flowing in these landscapes, often doing the wrong thing because we're producing cattle uh, and beef very inefficiently. Uh, where We had a soy system that was causing deforestation. Palm oil has totally transformed the forests of Southeast Asia. And these are products that we use every day. I mean, here we're sitting in Barcelona in Europe during this conference. The European economic area is a massive market for these products. So the demand is coming from Europe and places like China and to an extent the US. So figuring out how we can make that demand to be a force for good rather than bad is what's going on now. And the, because it's taken some time to do that, it's been hard to get investment to flow. And then of course, there's the carbon credit issue. Mm -hmm. So we might just talk about that too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why don't we do? That? Why don't we start with the supply chain issues, and then we can segue into okay. into the carbon issues. On the supply chain side, I know that you your organization has the Forest 500, and our organization has supply chains, the uh, two initiatives that kind of 
fit together. The way I always like to say is uh, that, that the Forest 500 looks to see who has promised to do the right thing, and supply chains then follows, follows in to see who's keeping their promises. We've covered a lot of this already, and you can listen to back episodes at bionic-planet.com or wherever you access us. Episode 11 focused on TRACE, that's T-R-A-S-E, which is a system that tracks soybeans and deforestation, while several episodes have covered the Forest Trends Initiative supply change, which tracks corporate action around the big four commodities that drive most deforestation, namely soy, palm, cattle, and timber and pulp. NGOs and even companies use these and other platforms to track corporate impacts on deforestation, but I'd love to see them evolve to a point where individuals can use them too. And that's where I steer the conversation now. By the way, when Andrew talks about our site, he means Trace, because Global Canopy helped create it together with the Stockholm Environment Institute. To me, they're interesting as resources for maybe a reporter who's trying to do do some some yeah. research. But it, um, do you see a possibility for consumers to use these, or maybe an investor for deciding this company has too much forest, too much risk exposure? Mm. I'm going to stay away from it. Mm. Like, what what would be your advice to to someone like that who's yeah. trying to reshuffle his portfolio and doesn't want it to get whacked by some company that suddenly, you know, has Greenpeace sure. showing up on its doorstep? Well, the uh, the whole science, in a sense, or uh, of where food comes from that's linked to deforestation has been invisible up until very recently. So uh, you wouldn't know where any of this stuff was really coming from. You might look at the, the writing on a packet. I, I, you, know, you might walk into Starbucks or something like that and say, well, I wonder where they get their coffee from. And uh, you could look up on the board and you can see, oh, today it's Costa Rica or Colombia, but you probably wouldn't know very much more. You might read something about a family. And actually, Starbucks is pretty good about tracing all that stuff, but it's still not easy for people to find. So one of the things our platform does is that, uh, and this part is not yet public, is that you can just simply go onto the platform, click on, say, Starbucks, and you can see where all their coffee is coming from in the whole of Brazil. And you can see whether it's coming from areas that are not with deforestation or, or, or what the deforestation risk is. Now, if you scale that up to include things like palm oil, paper and pulp, the soya bean trade, the beef and leather trade, we, these are the really big commodities that are causing the problems in landscapes. And no one has ever done that uh, until Trace came along. And Trace, uh, Trace.Earth, which is spelt with an S, uh, is a site that people can go and look on now, trace.earth. And what we've done there is that we, with the Stockholm Environment Institute and uh, Global Canopy Program, uh, we've collaborated uh, to buy vast amounts of trade data. These are things like tax receipts. When a sale is made, like a truck shows up with a whole lot of soy and makes a transaction, there's a receipt. That is public information. You can collect it. We can collect customs data. We can collect shipping data. We can track ships across the ocean with satellites. There's a whole lot of stuff we can do. And now with Global Forest Watch, with WRI, the World Resources Institute has done, we can match that with deforestation data. We can match it with water data. We can get CO2 emissions data. We can even get data on human rights abuses in the areas where these commodities are grown. So you can go from a jurisdiction in Brazil 
uh, an area there which is growing this stuff, we can gather data on all those characteristics and we can track that shipment of soy right the way across the world into China or into Europe or Russia or anywhere else where it's going. And we put all that up on the site. So you can just simply, and, and it shows you who's trading this stuff too. Uh, a lot of it is traded by huge companies like Bungay, um, uh, Dreyfus, uh, and uh, Cargill, these are the big traders who move this stuff around into markets. And, uh, and then it ends up in the products that we use every day in our food and our cooking, uh, or shoes, or things like that. So this is, for the first time, making it possible to see, is this stuff associated with a problem in a landscape or not? Now, who's interested in that? Well, if you cared as a member of the public, you might. If you were doing a scientific study of some kind, uh, a student or a professor, you can find this data out. You can even download the data sets and play with them yourself, which is very helpful for academics who are actually looking at some of this stuff. But in addition, if you are an investor or a company, for instance, that's using a lot of soy, uh, they may be like chocolate com companies that are well known for chocolates also actually use a lot of soy as a protein source. They want to know, well, where is this stuff coming from that we use? And normally they just rely on the traders to tell them, oh, it's fine. Now they've got an independent method of really getting some good detail on it. And now we'll know if they really wanted that too. Uh, well, that, that's another. <laughs> so they can choose to clean up or not clean up. It gets a conversation going. Right. And then the investors who actually have shares in those companies can say, oh, well, we, we're concerned about deforestation and we don't want to be investing in companies that are involved in deforestation. So uh, we notice that you're buying this stuff from these guys. Uh, let's have a talk about it. And so this whole conversation becomes much easier. Yeah, although most investors will only care if, if uh, consumers care. Well, th you know, therein lies, you know, the investment and the financial community have been the slowest to come to the party on these issues. They are not well educated on it generally, but they're getting much better. Some are really good, you know, like Credit Suisse and others have been doing tremendous work on coming up with conservation notes and uh, thinking this through. Uh, and some of the others that have good policies don't implement their policies very well. So they get caught out by Greenpeace who might uh, then challenge them. You know, you say you, you're not in lending to people who, who don't meet these criteria and then they do. And that's because they're very big and they sometimes don't know everything that's going on. <clears throat> but um, what's certainly happening is this is all becoming much, much more transparent. And so one of the things we're doing at uh, GCP is designing tools for the financial sector that can use trace data and help them to understand their impacts on nature. Uh, this might be in forests or it might be in water. Uh, an engagement tool so that they can start having conversations with the companies they're investing in. So this is all going to gradually lead to a, a big tightening up in this sector. But there's something that the ordinary public can do. And you might ask yourself, have you got a pension fund? Most of us have a, a pension. If you're a, an academic in a university, your university is paying into your pension fund. Um, well, do you know if your pension fund is investing in destroying rainforests? Uh, if you ask your financial advisor that question, probably you'll find no one ever asked them that question before. So go out and ask it, and then push it up the chain so that we need to raise awareness from ordinary people who have their money, pensions, that's a huge, huge amount of money around the world. Your pension and mine could be fueling the destruction of forests. Well, we don't want that to happen. So again, you get the conversation going, raise awareness, give them the tools to solve that problem, and we'll make that the use of money can become cleaner.
Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you know we actually did an episode on Trace? Did you Did you hear that? Uh, I think you did tell me that once. Yeah, okay. you did, uh, Steve. Yeah, so I'm I very delighted to hear that. Yeah. And tra- it's amazing how, you know, you start these things. Me as a, I started out 40 years ago as a zoologist, right? And I was running around hugging orangutans and jumping around in rainforests and going up in the canopy and trees. And I kind of realized that I couldn't save orangutans by hugging them. <laughs> I had to get out of the forest and get into finance because it's the movement of money around the world that is really destroying nature and they're blind to it if you go and look in a bloomberg terminal and for people who don't know what a bloomberg terminal is it's a it's like the bible on investing for an investor it's a it's a computer terminal that tells you everything you want to know about many many companies in the world and they use that to make their investment decisions it's full of financial information on financial capital but on natural capital it's hardly got any information at all. Yeah, yeah. And I believe that's going to change dramatically over the next 20 years. So my new orangutan is a Bloomberg terminal. I want to hug that and make that have <laughs> environmental data in it. Jane Goodall talks about something similar when she talks. She, she has a great um, presentation that she gives where she, she talks about forest finance and Red Plus, and she talks about it from a scientific point of view, and then she usually closes with a reference to, but of course, we don't just say forest because of what they do for us financially, it's what they do for us spiritually. And if you really want to experience a forest, go out and live in the forest. Yeah. Enjoy living, being in the forest. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful way. She, I love how she loops it back in. Yeah. Well, it is true that in my early days as a zoologist, being privileged to walk through these rainforests for weeks at a time, sometimes just with a, a local uh, tribal guide, a Panan in this case, mm-hmm. you know, with black ponytail, only a blowpipe, and, and we go out together and we couldn't speak each other's languages at all, but we managed to understand because we understood the forest. Yeah. So we would walk together. Uh, and these are experiences which are utterly extraordinary. The sounds of the forest, the, yeah. those amazing noises that you get in the mornings and the evenings. And just most people in their lives never have, never will have such an experience of living alone in a forest like that uh, i mean for miles yeah. and miles around in those areas what has driven me in my life is that those areas are all gone the banana i used to work with all gone mm-hmm. there are golf courses and airports yeah, that's where i used to do my research and that's what's driven me to say look we have to do better than this and figure out how to save rainforests yeah no that's really true i had a similar experience when i, I stayed with the you know the suderi so we, this, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Stayed with the, in one of their villages for a couple of weeks. And, you know, I thought I'd been in nature up in north, and I'm sure up in Canada you get places like that. But Wisconsin is not the same as the Amazon. <laughs> well, I think it's a big problem for our society because mm-hmm. generally we are dissociated from nature. Mm-hmm. You know, we buy all our food in a piece of plastic in some supermarket, and uh, you know, there's no sounds of nature around anymore. You don't breathe it. You don't see it. The nearest you get to it might be supermarket checkouts, which next time you pass one, have a think about it. They sound just like the frogs in a rainforest. All those little beeping, beep, 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 beep going. That's sort of what frogs use to cut through the noise in a rainforest. And supermarket tills use the same technique, so they hear all the beepings. But our lives are very dissociated. And if you're an investor, you're almost completely dissociated Mm -hmm. from nature. Yeah. So little wonder they don't think about it when they make their investments. Yeah, yeah. It kind of brings us to to the carbon finance aspect sure. of it because, you know, that that is a very very direct connection. How much how much time do we have? Sorry. Okay. Ten. Okay. When when you look at uh, forest carbon finance, you look at how uh, a company can uh, 
reduce its impact on forests. And you do get some companies like Dannon and Nestle and the usual suspects saying that, yeah, we do want to uh, preserve the forest, partly because it's the right thing to do, but also because we need the forest for our future supply chains. But then there's also carbon finance, you know, and red. Time for some vocabulary. Red, that's R-E-D-D, stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation of Forests. Red refers to a whole suite of financing mechanisms that tap carbon finance to save forests. It's a cornerstone of the Paris Climate Agreement, but that won't fully come into force until 2020. Until then, however, regional carbon markets like the one in California are funneling money into conservation by making it possible for companies to reduce their own carbon footprint by saving endangered forest. I went on to ask Andrew how we can ratchet up finance between now and 2020. Today in the world there are a few brave investors who, who've gone into this space and uh, one example that I, I know because uh, is Althelia uh, Climate Fund and uh, they, the Althelia Ecosphere Fund, were able to raise a fund of about $100 million and then the idea is to deploy that into landscapes in Latin America to uh, help with cocoa and coffee production, produce a better life for the people who are the farmers, and also protect the forests at the same time and reduce emissions. This requires loans to be given to local people who many investors would say, well, we don't know if they're going to pay us back, uh, and uh, interest rates there are very high, so we wanted to produce funding with lower interest rates and over longer periods of time because mostly they have very short payback periods like mm -hmm. two or three years and the farmers can't do that because mm -hmm. their crops are tricky uh, <coughs> often if you're a palm oil farmer you have to take out your palm trees it'll take you five years before you get any revenue you can only borrow money for three years in Indonesia so nobody does it so all the trees are getting really old yeah. so these are things that uh, uh, money which has got a high risk appetite uh, they can often be in public-private partnerships where governments can come in and help what's called de-risk the investment by perhaps offering to buy some of the products at a, at a, a floor price, i.e. a minimum price. So what we're seeing now is governments are increasingly trying to help investors to take some of the risks uh, and investors are really keen to get involved in this because they, they're the, the people who own the money, the, the asset owners, which might be a pension fund, are saying, well, we'd like to, to help in this area. And some of our clients are really interested in trying to do something to save our infrastructure. We want to put some of our money in there. So you get a pool of money. It goes in like that. You can improve farmers' lives. You stop deforestation. And then you can get a carbon credit from doing that because you're less emissions going into the sky. That can all be carefully calculated to standards that are well known such as uh, CCBA and the voluntary carbon standard. All these standards are now there and increasingly proven. You go back 10 years ago, none of this stuff existed. So we have really good technologies, really good standards, high quality credits coming out uh, with good longevity and the issues of permanence and all and uh, not so much leakage, leakage is still a big problem, but permanence seems to be pretty good now. So a lot of the fears that people had in the past have gone away. Uh, and what then happens is you generate a whole lot of credits, but who are you going to sell them right. to? So Althelia has set up its own 
marketing arm, which is called Ecosphere Plus, and I must declare an interest here because they pay me as an advisor. So, yeah, I am talking about them, but mm -hmm. there are other ones. There's a really good one like Terabella Fund, who've been at this for a long time. Uh, there's also things like uh, Wildlife Works, who's mm -hmm. been working. There are a few people who... Livelihoods um, Fund, does hmm? they do the same? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. And, the, and, and people have been working away at this for yeah. a long time, but there's no big scale in it. The problem is that you can only really sell these credits into a voluntary market. Mm -hmm. and that means it might be a hotel chain that wants to buy them or individuals. There's no compliance market, and that, except California. for California. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think South Korea is another potential, possibly Japan, but nothing that's a global. So there's no big market pool. But I hope that's all about to change. Mm -hmm. And then that's because of aviation, right? Yes. Uh -huh. We covered aviation in episode eight, and we'll have more on that at the end of summer. In a nutshell, the Paris Agreement created a framework for keeping the global rise in temperatures below 2 degrees Celsius, that's about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, over pre-industrial levels. But it left emissions from international flights, like when you fly from the U.S. to Germany in limbo, partly because their international nature made it hard to reach agreement on which countries to charge the emissions to. Late last year, 65 countries, representing 83 percent of international flights, agreed to cap their greenhouse gas emissions from international flights from 2021 onward, in part by forcing airlines to offset emissions above 2020 levels. We don't yet know what type of offsets will be recognized, but the organization that I work for, namely Forest Trends, is advocating the use of forestry offsets, while some NGOs are arguing against. I personally agree with Forest Trends, and not because I work for them. Here's my reasoning, and you'll see Andrew pick this up as well. Forest carbon projects are currently protecting an area larger than all the forests of the Democratic Republic of Congo, according to Ecosystem Marketplace's most recent State of Forest Carbon Finance report. The companies and NGOs that created those projects, however, are treading water. They spent a ton of money to save the forests, usually by helping farmers in and around those forests improve their land management practices, as we saw in Episode 7. On top of that, they had to get verified and validated by outside auditors, which also cost money, but ensures they're actually delivering results. If those projects go under, the forests go with them. Uh, aviation is a, a real big opportunity here because all of these producers, these project developers, who've been using their own money, not government money, their own money often, or, or money from philanthropy to build up these projects, build schools and good lives for the people who are producing the credits. They're waiting. They need cash flow. They can't survive forever just waiting for governments to make up their mind because you run out of money. Mm -hmm. So it's vital that sales uh, pick up soon. And a, a really big opportunity is from the aviation industry, which uh, has concluded that it has to deal with its emissions and is setting up a market mechanism to achieve that, which will sort of kick in uh, really on 2021, after 2021. Mm -hmm. But there's a pre-compliance period, like a sort of voluntary period between 2015 and 2021, where people could actually start buying now. So we hope that uh, aviation, which is coming up with this mechanism, will allow forest credits to be one of the offset mechanisms 
uh, that can be used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we won't know for another couple of years, I think, right? Well, it'll be sooner than that. Yeah. There can be some key decisions made this autumn, around about October, and then by February or March next year, they should have defined that, right. the criteria uh, and whether forests are in or out. Mm-hmm. And um, now, you know, some people say, oh, well, we should stop flying. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't have those emissions going up in the atmosphere, but... I don't see that happening anytime soon. If you look at the growth curve for aviation globally, it's absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only 25,000 new aircraft built uh, in the next I don't know, 20 years or so. so. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the, the emissions that that creates, which nobody wants, but aircraft are already incredibly efficient. They can maybe move to biofuels, maybe become a little bit more efficient, but basically you either stop flying or you, you offset. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to have to be an offset. And it's going to be... You know, the total offset requirement to 2040 will be about 7.8 gigatons. So the amount that is uh, in the nearer term period, we're probably looking at, you know, a bigger source of demand than almost any other sector coming in for forests. So if forests get included, this could really drive this whole change in landscapes and deliver funding to projects that really need it. Yeah, but there is resistance to that right now. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't want forests in it at least as a market mechanism well there are a few mm-hmm. very vocal ngos and i i'm an also an ngo person you know global mm-hmm. canopy program been running that for 17 years and uh, we are also an ngo and we know a lot about the forest space there are some who for philosophical reasons and reasons that i respect um feel that offsets are philosophically wrong because it allows businesses to uh, continue polluting whilst they buy an offset but as long as they're reducing their emissions whilst they offset, uh, that can be fine. I think offset is a bad name, actually. Yeah. It makes you think you're getting away with something. But yeah. Actually, it's a transition process to a better world. So it's a kind of a transset. I like that word, transset. I didn't catch it as we were talking, but it's a good one because offsets aren't meant to be a permanent solution. They're meant to accelerate our transition to a low-carbon economy by driving resources into the technologies and practices that can reduce emissions most rapidly and efficiently. I do understand uh, NGOs that have these concerns. Uh, They tend to be quite noisy. Mm. And what I find in the NGO movement, there's a lot of people who actually agree with this, but they don't say anything about it. Mm. And these are some of the biggest NGOs in the world. Mm. And I think they should speak up. Yeah, we yeah. need more and more people to speak up for forests, the big NGOs who say, no, no, this is something we should really do. Yeah. I'm actually doing a, uh, a piece on ICAO, which is the, the, the aviation program. As I understand it, there are some NGOs that are not opposed to offsets per se, but are opposed to anything that's subnational relating to yes. forestry because of the leakage issue. Yes. Vocabulary break again. Leakage is one of those terms you hear a lot. It's when you stop deforestation from happening in one place, but then the people you stop go down the road or to another country and just chop trees there. There's a whole debate that we'll get into later focused on jurisdictional versus project-based red, which might sound like a mouthful, but it simply means funneling money into states or regions that reduce deforestation instead of into isolated individual projects or, alternatively, nesting projects within states or regions that are themselves reducing emissions so that all the emission reductions are accounted for holistically. 
I won't get into the specifics on that debate here because it's really complex and it's a whole can of worms, but I wanted to make you aware of its existence because Andrew and I do discuss it. The difference, some people are saying, no, it could, it could go in as long as it goes into national payments to a country yes. and not to a, uh, little patches of that country. Well, th- this is where everything gets pretty technical. But yeah. If you've got a, a few technical listeners out there, they might be interested in this. And uh, yeah, it's a, one of the big problems is if you stop deforestation in in area A, will it simply drift off and leak to area B? Uh, We're seeing this in Brazil, where deforestation has been reduced in Brazil from a big high in 2005, but deforestation in Uruguay and Paraguay, just across the border, has gone up a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's because the Brazilian farmers have simply moved across the border to a weaker regime. How do you stop that? It's going to be extremely difficult, even if you pay at a national level. If we had all the money going in nationally in Brazil, but you didn't have political will in those other countries, you simply wouldn't stop it. Now, that trickles all the way down to a sub-national situation like a jurisdiction, a province, right down to a county. Uh, And what people are saying is that... um, if you just have a little project that's producing emissions down here, that somehow this must all, it, it must be accounted for, because these emissions belong to the country. Mm-hmm. So if you then sell your emission to an airline, that's an emission the country can't use for its own use. Right. So that all has to be agreed nationally. And I mean, you get into all this question of nesting. You know, you might think that something, nesting is something you, you do with your chickens and eggs. <laughs> but nesting in forests is all about a project is, is, uh, which might be reducing emissions, is nested within a jurisdiction, yeah. which might be like a county or a, you know, some sort of municipality. And the, the, the emissions that are reduced by that project somehow need to be accounted for by the government in that jurisdiction. And then those all get sent up to the national accounting level. That's how all this works. So yeah, it is complicated, but it's not that difficult. People have worked out how to do it. It can be done. It's just a simple accounting procedure. It happens all the time. And there'll be countries who say, yeah, okay, you can sell that. I don't need that one. That's fine. And we'll put it on our register. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is that when the airlines want to come and say, well, we want to do deals here. We, we're, we're, we're efficient. We, get, we want to get on quickly. They don't have any confidence that if they have to buy this stuff through a government, Mm-hmm. that that will happen anytime soon. Right. Many of these countries have no registries in place yet. Uh, they don't have uh, monitoring mechanisms in place. It probably won't happen for a decade. Mm-hmm. They want to get going within two years. Mm-hmm. So what do they do in the meantime? So we need to find a way to bridge that gap, and there's a lot of discussion going on a- about that right now. And that would be, between now and then, that would be where markets could work? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, there's this... Uh, preliminary period up to 2021 when Mm. airlines we want to encourage them to buy Mm. uh, there are plenty of projects that are starved of cash those emissions that those projects create and the reference levels this is again getting pretty technical Mm -hmm. but in other words if you're reducing an emission you better work you know you have a a baseline Mm -hmm. that you're reducing it against that might be several years earlier we need to get those aligned with the jurisdictional baselines and the government baseline get all that aligned uh, and then Uh, We need to find a way so that uh, these jurisdictions can actually start uh, getting money coming in to help them through sales uh, to these uh, customers and not have to wait 10 years when they'll get no money and there'll be no stopping deforestation in those jurisdictions. We need to find a way to bridge that gap. Andrew Mitchell closing out this edition of Bionic Planet. In the coming weeks, we'll speak to impact investors Richard Frenopfel and Noel Claire Lacan who are putting hundreds of millions of dollars into sustainable agriculture. And later this week, we'll speak with my colleague, Genevieve Bennett. 
who has published a series of studies on how Europeans are using results-based finance to improve the way they manage their forests, farms, and fields. Again, if you like what you hear, be sure to let others know and consider becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. Even $1 per episode or $1 per month helps if enough of you do it. And with more funding, I can take more time to do these right, ratchet up the production values, crank them out more often, and bring in others to help with editing. Because I still cringe when I hear these episodes a few weeks after I post them. Hopefully I haven't made you cringe too much on this one, and maybe you even learned something. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.